Have you ever had something happen in your life that just did not make sense? Have you ever planned for something or you expected something to happen only for something else completely different to occur, for something else to completely throw off your plans? When something happens or something occurs in your life that does not make sense, well, it can leave us with a lot of questions. We may wonder, why did this happen? What even was the point of that? What's happening here? For those of us here this morning who are Christians, we sometimes throw God into that question and in our thought process. We wonder, what is God's purpose in this event? What is His purpose in our experience? What is He up to? Well, let me give you an example of this. Uh, This week, I had planned on this Friday to spend the day with my fiancé at an amusement park. However, she was rear-ended on Thursday, and she's okay, but needless to say, our plans had to change. And on the surface, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why did that happen? And I don't really know. I don't have a good answer for that. So what are we supposed to do when God does something unexpected in our lives? How are we supposed to respond when something happens that does not make sense to us? Well, today we're going to read about God asking his people to do something unexpected. By every human standard, what God is going to tell his people to do does not make any sense. But the Israelites respond by waiting in obedience. And we who are God's people today, we should learn to do the same. If you're not there already, I'd ask you to please turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. If you'd like to use that red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you should find it on page 118. Again, Joshua, chapter 5. And once you're there, if you're able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I will read our passage for today. Joshua 5, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, starting in verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted. There was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, they had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, 
they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world that sometimes doesn't make sense. But that is why we need you, and we need your presence with us. We especially need it now, God, as we try to understand and apply your word to us. As John the Baptist said, may you increase, may we decrease. Lord, lead us to wait on you in obedience. May we celebrate as you send us off to do your will. And most importantly, guide us to worship our true commander, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's think a moment about where we are in Scripture. So we're in the book of Joshua. Book of Joshua. This is a book about God fulfilling his promises to his people. He promised them to give them a land of their own. And this book is that promise coming to fulfillment. His people had spent over 400 years in slavery in the land of Egypt until God used a man named Moses to lead them to freedom. He was going to give them a land, but they refused to trust God. And so they have to spend another 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But now, here in Joshua, God has raised up a new generation of God's people, and he's raised up a man named Joshua to lead them. Last week, we talked about how the Lord miraculously held back the flooded waters of the Jordan River so that his people could enter the promised land on dry ground. Now, the first part of this chapter shows us Joshua and the Israelites waiting in obedience. They're waiting in obedience. The chapter begins by revealing to us the result of Israel's miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. Verse 1 says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, as soon as they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, as soon as they heard that, their hearts melted. There was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. 
The people of the land heard what happened. Their hearts melted in fear. All the kings and leaders from the Jordan River to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, they become paralyzed with fear. They lost all their courage. The message has spread. God was with his people. He was working for them. Now at this point, we expect the Israelites to charge ahead. God's parted the river. He's allowed them to go through. The people are afraid of them. This is the time to go. Attack the city of Jericho. Instead, what the Lord tells Joshua to do is to circumcise the second generation of Israelites. And we're told that Joshua immediately obeys in verse 3, and so many men are circumcised that the place is called Gibeath Haraloth, which literally means the hill of the foreskins. Now, the next few verses tell us why it is necessary for Joshua to do this. The reason is all of the military men of war, all the men of fighting age who came out of Egypt, they had died in the wilderness. Verse 6 tells us why. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. This first generation had let fear rule over their faith, and their disobedience kept them out of the promised land. God swore, he solemnly promised that he would not show them his blessing. He would not let them see the land. It was a very good land, but their rebellion had consequences. We see this happen in Numbers 14, 29 through 31. God says to them, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, all of you who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except for the two men who did believe in him, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, your children that you were afraid would be killed, these little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. They shall know the land that you have rejected. That's what our passage is about here. We also see that this older generation had failed to circumcise their children. But there's a new generation of God's people with Joshua now. They have been raised up by the Lord in their parents' place. Now these people are committed to the Lord. They're obedient to God's command. And even though they may have wanted to go ahead and attack, they stay where they are. They remain in the camp so that they can rest in obedience to the Lord's command. They put their commitment to God first. Pastor Charles Spurgeon, he applies their actions this way. He says, you cannot expect that God should send you forth to conquer, to bring him renown. You cannot expect that when you have not as yet conquered your own personal indolence, when you have not conquered your own personal laziness and disobedience. If we've not turned from our sin, it's going to be very difficult for God to use us. In verse 9, we're told that God uses this action to remove the reproach, the shame, and the disgrace the people had for spending centuries in slavery. That's why the place is called Gilgal. It sounds like the Hebrew word for to roll. So by camping at Gilgal or camping at roll, they are reminded that God has rolled back their guilt, and shame. They do not have to be held back by their past. 
they could move forward with their God. Okay, Pastor John, what's going on here? Why all this talk about circumcision? You've said that word so much reading this chapter. Well, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant. It was a sign of God's special agreement with Abraham. In Genesis 17, 9 and 10, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. This is it. What you should do is every male among you shall be circumcised. It's a permanent, it's a personal sign of commitment to the one true God. It's a reminder to every Israelite of God's promise to bless Abraham and his descendants. Nevertheless, though, there's more to this than just a simple surgery. Moses would explain what circumcision represents in a spiritual sense. He does this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The surgical marks of circumcision represent the spiritual marks, the changes that God makes in a heart that belongs to him. It's a reminder to us that our spiritual health must come before our physical health. Now, it's important to take care of our bodies, but it is essential to care for our souls. Now, still, the timing of this event here in Joshua, it seems really strange to me. The Israelites had just crossed the flooded Jordan River on dry land. Their enemies are afraid of them. Any sensible military commander would know now is the time to attack. Instead, Joshua stops his forward movement, has the people camp, and not only that, he puts all his soldiers out of commission. We're told in verse 8 that the people needed time to heal. They remained in their places until they healed. What is Joshua thinking here? Elsewhere in the Bible, there's a story in uh, Genesis chapter 34 where some men are so weak, even on the third day after circumcision, they cannot defend themselves from an attack. They're so weak that they are all killed in their beds. So that's the condition the Israelite soldiers are in. And now they're trapped. Look at this map. Their backs are to the Jordan River, this flooded river. They can't go back across it. There's no going back. And then in front of them is a whole country full of people who hate them, full of people who know that they are there to try to take their land. They're not their friends. They're their enemies who want to see them defeated. So the Israelites are trapped, they're vulnerable, and they're exposed. Why would God have them do this? On the surface, it doesn't make any sense. Now, as readers of the scripture, we know that the people of the land are very afraid of them. They're paralyzed with fear. We know that Joshua is about to meet the divine commander of the Lord's army. But the Israelites did not know this. They had to trust God. They had to acknowledge that he knows best. Probably the best place we see this in scripture is a verse that we read earlier before our offering today. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's timing and his ways, they're not our timing or our ways. By waiting, by camping, by having a circumcision, the Israelites lost their military advantage. But it didn't really matter because God is on their side and he is always in control. In the same way, it can be easy for us to question God's timing. Our problems in our lives seem so pressing. We feel the need to address them immediately. We want to solve the problems in our life so we can get on with living life. But God has a different perspective. His agenda is not our agenda. He uses trials and suffering in our lives to grow us into the men and women that he wants us to be. Sometimes we might see a glimpse of what he's doing in our lives, but sometimes we do not. As I thought about this, I thought about how right now our church is in a time where we're not exactly sure what God is doing. From a human perspective, the events of this past year really do not make a lot of sense. They can make us scratch our heads. Why did all of this happen? To our church. Our emphasis on evangelism was growing. We just made some changes in our structure so we could be more effective in ministry. We were preparing for greater outreach and growth. Why now, God? Why now? And the truth is, I don't know the answer to those questions. I don't know exactly what God is doing. But you know, I do know that He is good all the time. I do know that his purposes will be accomplished. I do know that his will will be done. And I do know that we are faithfully called to pursue him. So, as for me, I'm going to continue to chase after the Lord and see what he has for us next. Our God is always in control. He challenges us to trust and depend on him. King David realized how important this is in Psalm 62, 5 and 6. He said, let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. Now, this talk about waiting, it doesn't mean that we sit back and we do nothing. The Lord has called us to live for him. He's called us to fulfill his will. But we are to rely on him in trust, realizing that he is in control and we are not. The prophet Isaiah uses some memorable language to describe this in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, even youths grow tired and weary, young men stumble and fall, but those who hope, those who wait in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. When we wait, when we trust, when we hope, when we depend on God, He gives us the ability to soar through life, to run into His future for us, to walk in confidence with our Lord. Often commitment to God requires vulnerability on our part. It might look weak to the rest of the world to admit that we need help to get through this life. Yet, 
when God brings someone to that point, when he brings them to the point that they know they need help, and then they call out to him, that is when his real work can begin. God favors those who do not rely on themselves, but who trust in his loving kindness. As the Israelites wait, they have a celebration and they have a send-off, a celebration and a send-off. Listen to verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer any manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Four days after they crossed the river, the people kept. They celebrated the feast of Passover. In God's perfect timing, this was the exact day that was prescribed back in the book of Exodus. They're told that for Passover, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until, now I put this italics in, the 14th day of this month, the first month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Passover is a celebration of how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. What happened was God killed all the firstborn of their Egyptian masters, but he then passed over the houses of his people that were marked with the blood of the sacrificed lamb. And this same chapter in Exodus, it gives us another reason why it was so important for the men to be circumcised. We just read about verse 48 of that chapter says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. The Israelites could not celebrate the Passover if they were not circumcised. And God wanted the Israelites to begin their time in the promised land on a good note, by obeying him. He brought them across the river just in time for them to be circumcised and then to celebrate the feast of Passover. So again, the timing of all of this might seem a little strange to us, but this celebration must have been a powerful witness to the people of Jericho. They're less than two miles away from Jericho, and they're continuing to worship their God even in the face of their enemies. They knew that their worship had to come before their warfare. There's never a bad time for us to celebrate what God has done for us. For believers today, we celebrate God by praising Him like we did at the beginning of the service, by worshiping Him, and we celebrate Him by remembering His work through baptism and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So there's a celebration in verse 10, but then there's a heavenly send-off in these verses because God is going to stop doing something that he had been doing for 40 years. He stops providing manna for his people. We're told that on the day after they celebrated the Passover, the people were able to eat cakes and bread made from poached or roasted grain. 
They're able to enjoy the produce, the harvest of the land. And since they now had fruit and crops to eat, they did not need God's heavenly food. When they were in the barren wilderness, the Lord provided food, a type of bread for them, manna. They'd find it on the ground six mornings a week. Exodus 16 describes it to us. The house of Israel called its name manna. It was like a coriander seed. It was white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. That's what we're reading today. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. They needed food in the wilderness. And so God miraculously provided this manna for his people. Yet even then, there was a larger purpose at work than just full bellies for the people. Moses explains this greater purpose of manna in Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, God humbled you. He caused you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And why did he do this? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The purpose of the manna was to teach the Israelites to depend on God. But now they do not need God to provide them food. And they've seen his mighty works on their behalf. They know that they can trust him. And so this is the end of an era for God's people. God gave the Israelites extra help. He gave them the manna when they were in the wilderness. But when they got to the abundant and fruitful promised land, he took that extra help away. It was not needed anymore. They were in their new fruitful home. Their wandering was over. They were where they were supposed to be. God gave the Israelites what they needed for the season that they were in. He does the same for us. He gives us what we need when we need it. Can I be honest a bit personal about where I reflected on this in my own life? As I thought about this blessing, this temporary grace of manna, I remember that God has blessed me with a relatively stress-free first four and a half years in ministry. Now, there were struggles and issues, but God was faithful to resolve them in His timing. And don't get me wrong, I worked hard during those years, but I also had opportunities to grow and to learn, to travel, attend conferences and events. And I'm thankful, so thankful for that time of growth and development. And I'm especially grateful to you, the members of East Shore Baptist Church, for giving me that time, allowing me a season to grow and to be molded into the man and the pastor that God has called me to be. I will always be thankful to God and to you for that time. But God took that manna. He took that blessing of a low-stress ministry away this year. The last half year has been very hard. But now... As I thought about it and looked at this passage, I realized God was preparing me for this time. He brought the right people. He brought the right resources beside me to encourage me and support me. It's time for me to move forward into what he has next for my life, into what he has next for our church. Right now, in this moment, for this season, it means preaching the word. It means caring for the people of this church. I won't do it perfectly. 
and I ask you to forgive me when I fail. But I pray by his grace that I am found faithful. And I'm trusting him for what happens next. Maybe you've had something similar in your life. You can look back. You can see there was a season where you received extra grace from the Lord that prepared you for a time of trial, a time where you are now. Well, praise God for that manna. Don't forget it. But remember, now is the time to move forward. Well, the Israelites have been circumcised. They've celebrated Passover. They are enjoying the fruit of the promised land. What more do they need? Well, they need the Lord. They need the presence of God with them. They need the true commander. Listen to verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him, said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, in many ways, these verses are kind of an introduction to the great battle of Jericho. That's what we're going to talk about next week. This conversation Joshua is having with the commander of the Lord's army, it's going to continue into the next chapter. For now, though, Joshua is scouting the city of Jericho, and this man appears in front of him we'll find out that Joshua is experiencing what sometimes Bible scholars call a theophany. He's experiencing an Old Testament appearance of God, an Old Testament appearance of God the Son. He's interacting with a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He's interacting with Jesus before the Christmas story. Just so you know, Jesus did not come into existence in that manger in Bethlehem. He always existed as a unique person of the Godhead, the fullest expression of the Lord's holiness and power. You might say, how do you know that, Pastor John? How do we know this is the Lord? Well, if you look down two verses, or you can look up on the screen, we see this same person Joshua's talking to, and it says, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. These chapter numbers, verse numbers, these were added later. You're supposed to keep reading through. So the person he's talking to is called the Lord. This story also has a lot of parallels with the account of Moses and the burning bush. We read about this in Exodus 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked, behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And the Lord said to him, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. Again, just like we read, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He bowed before God because he was afraid to look at God. Our text is similar. Joshua is told he's on holy ground. He's told to take off his sandals as a sign of respect. Now, when Joshua sees this man, at first he doesn't know who he is, and so we ask him, are you for Israel or are you for our enemies? Are you a friend or foe? 
And it's such a powerful response. The commander says, no, no. He is on neither side. Now, God is obviously supporting the Israelites. We talked last week. He just held back a river for them. By saying no, the Lord is telling Joshua, you're asking the wrong question. Dr. Michael Smith, the professor I had, said the issue is not whether God is on our side. The real question is whether we are on God's side. And as I was looking up that, I also found Abraham Lincoln said something similar. He said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Asking if God is on our side, that's arrogant. It makes us the captain rather than the Lord. It's far less important to know if God thinks we are right than it is to know that we are on God's side. His will, his word should dictate our allegiance. The Lord alone is to be our true commander-in-chief. Joshua bows down to the man in reverence. He worships him. He asks what message the Lord has to say to him. He wants to do whatever God says. And this response is appropriate because when we come face to face with the person and work of God, we should worship. When we more, learn more about God, when we learn more about him in our life or we learn more about him through his word, we should humble ourselves and praise him. When we're worshiping God, we're making ourselves, metaphorically, as low as we can be. We're declaring that God is worthy of praise, honor, glory, affection, and devotion, and we are not. Yet, even though we're making ourselves low before God, it's one of the most spiritually uplifting things that we can do, because nothing quite brings us into the experience of God's presence, like giving Him the praise and honor that He is due. We were made to worship our Lord. The point of this passage in Joshua 5 is that God is the real captain in his people's fights. He comes with his army, he fights, and he wins. One of my professors described Joshua and the Israelites in this passage as they're the secondary troops. The Israelites are the backups. They're the second string. They're warming the bench. The army of the Lord will be the ones who are really doing the fighting. They're the ones who will really be winning the promised land. This is not the only time we see these armies of heaven in Scripture. One of the best stories about this is found in the book of 2 Kings in chapter 6. In this passage, the Israelites are surrounded by their enemies. The prophet Elisha has a servant who is scared. But Elisha says this to his servant. He says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It didn't matter how many soldiers the Israelites had. It didn't matter how many soldiers their enemies had. God was with them, and he always wins. Believers in God today, we can trust in the same help, the same support of our commander. The New Testament puts it this way. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? With God on our side, nothing else matters. If you've turned to Jesus Christ in faith and trust, then you can trust that the Lord will be with you and that he will give you everything that you need. That's why if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you desperately need one. It's the only way for you to be forgiven for your rebellion against God. It's the only way for you to have an eternal home after this life is over. I would encourage you, please talk to me. Talk to another genuine believer about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there's a bit more in this passage for believers, though. Because if we are to be used by the Lord, we have to be completely dependent on our commander. Jesus is very practical about this in John 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain, if you wait in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All that we do without the Lord is nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. It will not last. But if God is with us, then even a small thing, like a conversation with someone about God, or maybe an act of service for an unbeliever that may pave the way for a chance to share the gospel, even something small like that can echo throughout eternity. We fight our battles today with the assurance that Jesus Christ has already won the victory on our behalf. The end for us is not a mystery. Jesus has already won. We have only to wait to see his victory fleshed out. In the meantime, his presence is with us to help us to live for him, to serve him, and to grow to become like him. The Israelites needed to wait and experience restful worship of the true commander. We should do the same. A pastor named Rhett Dotson, he has this encouragement for believers. He says, worship Jesus Christ. That is what will prepare you to serve him and to fight against your temptations and trials because as you worship him, you will become like him. Trust in God. Rely on him. We may not understand everything he does. In the moment, it might not make sense to us. But waiting on him is always, always the best course of action. As we trust in God, as we move forward in faith, as we celebrate the one true commander, Jesus Christ, he's the one who died so that we might know the one true God, so that we might enter the eternal promised land. Friends, let's praise him now because he loves us, because he is always in control. Let's respond in worship because he alone is worthy.